0: Hi everybody, this is Stefan Johansson, and you're listening to Beyond the
1: Grid. Hi everyone, and welcome to your favourite place here in Podcastland. It's Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. Unfortunately, I'm starting this episode on a sombre note, because like everyone, I was horrified to hear late last week about Alex Zanardi's terrible handbike accident while competing in a road race in Italy. Alex was my guest on last week's show and anyone who's listened to our conversation will be in no doubt as to his courage and resilience. And to hear what happened to him just two days after our show went out was sickening. As we release this week's show, Alex remains in hospital in a serious condition, his prognosis uncertain. I have everything crossed for you, my friend, and wish you a swift and full recovery, and I'm sure all of you out there feel the same way. As for this week's show, my guest is none other than Stefan Johansson, F1's 80-spec super-Swede. I've long been a fan of his since first seeing him race at the 1983 British Grand Prix at Silverstone. That race was his Grand Prix debut, and I remember loving his black helmet and beefy-looking spirit Honda. He outqualified reigning world champion Kake Rosberg, too. And no one does that by accident. His career was to be one of highs and lows. He scored 12 podiums, and he deserved to win several races. But Ferrari team orders or lady luck always intervened at the crucial moment. But Stefan can still be hugely proud of what he achieved. He drove for two of the sport's biggest teams, Ferrari and McLaren, And he stacked up well against three of the fastest teammates a driver could ever have. Ayrton Senna, Alain Prost and Stefan Beloff. That's quite a list and a lot of memories. And luckily for us, Stefan is one of the most articulate racing drivers ever to have sat behind the wheel of a Formula One car. Some of the stories he tells are jaw-dropping. And not only about the teams and individuals he came into contact with, but about Formula One in the 1980s more generally. And he's very funny too, particularly about the 1987 Austrian Grand Prix, which was an especially tough weekend. So sit back and enjoy hearing from one of Formula One's 80s megastars. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Stefan, it is lovely to have you on the show. We're staring at each other down a zoom lens. Look, where in the world are you, for goodness sake? I'm in Santa Monica, California. And that is home now, I guess.
0: Yep. California's been home for 16 years now, actually. The US, almost 25. So when was the last time you saw snow? (laughs) Well, funny enough, last week, believe it or not, because I was actually in Park City, Utah, for a couple of days, and they still have snow on the mountains there. But, uh, I mean, I, you know, I go back to Europe very often. So, you know, I'm in Sweden five, six times a year on average, I would say, and have been throughout the whole time I've been over here. So I get, I get a bit of a dose of the home country
1: every now and then. And you're running various businesses out of California now, including a management company which includes uh, IndyCar stars Scott Dixon and Felix Rosenquist. But how much are you still involved and in, in watching Formula One?
0: Uh, well, I'm not involved in the capacity where I actually do any work, but I'm following it very, very closely. And I'm, you know, I love racing. It's my life, you know, and I'm a big fan still. And I do follow it quite closely, you know, and do my own observations. I do my little blog, you know, where I, comment on things every now and then, you know. Um, and I keep in touch with quite a lot of friends in the business still. So, you know, you sort of try to get the inside scoop on bits and pieces that's going on.
1: How do you reflect then on your career in Formula One? Well, I mean,
0: you know, it was okay, I guess. It's the best way to describe it. It wasn't, you know, you I mean, the timing wasn't always the best and, uh, you know, the results, you always want more, of course, you know, but I mean, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I had a pretty good run. I was there for, almost 10 years you know so it wasn't it wasn't the worst an
1: incredible era actually wasn't it so first race 1980 last race 1991 which cars did you prefer the sort of turbo monsters of the sort of mid 80s or the smaller slightly more refined cars of the early 90s i think
0: i mean the best era in in my opinion in history of f1 was probably the turbo era the cars were insane so much horsepower and very little grip. It was so free and completely over the top. You know, just whatever you could come up with, it was okay, you know, and just go for it. Aero had really just started to come into the picture. So of course it made a difference, but nowhere near the difference it makes today, you know, where everything is about Aero. And the engines were just insane.
1: How difficult was it to control those cars of, you know, let's talk about 85, 86, 87 when you were at Ferrari and McLaren. Everyone talks about them being beasts and crazy. I mean, did you sort of have to take a deep breath as you were starting a quali lap?
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, even at the track like Monza, you know, which is very long straights and, and long gears, you were getting wheel spin going from fifth to sixth going down to the Parabolica, you know, so I mean, it was just insane. So, I mean, it was definitely exhilarating, you know, and you, you had to kind of adapt, you know, completely different driving style where you were just kind of hugging the inside of the corner to the last moment so you got had as much room as possible on the exit when the thing would light up, all hell would break loose. you know, and you just needed as much room as possible to kind of gather it all together and try to get, I mean, let's say you were in second gear and the engine lit up. I mean, by the time you hit the curb on the outside, you were already in fourth gear. We said, bum, 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 bum. I mean, you couldn't shift quick enough. Manual shift as well. So the the gear shift was actually probably the one thing that had more effect on the lap time than anything else just on the upshift because how quickly you could shift you know
1: and was there much lag in those turbo engines
0: yeah yeah it was yeah definitely i mean on the lower gears yeah i mean once you were on the cam once you were on the cam there was no lag but what you know when you were feeding the throttle on the slow corner and, it, and power came in and then when he came in it was like a light
1: switch you know amazing i remember when that's when i was falling in love with formula one <laughs> Stefan, that you have met and worked with so many of Formula One's great personalities of that era that I thought it was quite a good way to talk about your story using those personalities to help tell the story. So let's talk about Ron Dennis, for example, McLaren boss, but you won the British Formula Three championship for him in 1980 and then raced again for him in Formula One in 1987. Can you just describe your relationship with Ron?
0: Well, I mean, Ron, I think of all the team owners that I worked with was, I mean, first of all, even when he was, when we were doing Project 4, you know, with F3, before he even had the F1 team, his attention to details was just beyond anything else, really. I mean, you know, the preparation was always immaculate, you know, everything was just kind of the best it could be in, in that kind of narrow little box we worked in right then. But... Once he got into Formula One, of course, every year he kept moving the goalposts for everybody, really. And everybody had to kind of follow, you know. Uh, I think McLaren was the first team that really got into aerodynamics in a big way. Obviously, they were the first with the carbon fiber. But not only that, but just like the appearance of the team, you know, the motorhomes, the pit lane. I mean, everything was just, it was always one step above the rest as a driver it's an amazing environment to work in you know because you always know you get the best you can get you know so everything is there for you to get your job done basically and that was even
1: the case in formula 3
0: yeah absolutely yeah i mean it was everything was just immaculate you know and and also as a as a team boss you know i mean you kind of felt he really cared you know about not just what you did on the track but more like a kind of a, a little bit like a father figure in a way you know So you always had a great level of comfort and support, it felt like, to really do the best you can, basically, you know, on the track.
1: And for people who aren't that familiar with your early years, you'd already driven two races in Formula One at that point, Mm. or tried to, for Shadow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And did Ron, in a way, sort of scoop you up after that disappointment? Or was that Formula Three season already in the bag when you accepted to do those early races for Shadow? No.
0: So he, Ron came in kind of shortly after that, you know, and, and uh, we had talk from the season before. And, I mean, obviously Ron had a you know eye on the bigger picture. I mean, I think I was just a small cog in that whole thing to get to the Marlboro program, basically. But he really put the effort into, because I had almost done the deal with uh, Tim Schenken and Howden Ganley uh, with uh, Tiger to do the F3 with them. And then Ron came in and uh, put on the whole sales pitch, you know, and convinced everybody. And, uh, and and that's where
1: I ended up in the end. And during that season, were you aware of the Formula One ambitions for the team? I mean, were you aware that John Barnard was probably beavering away somewhere, making a carbon composite chassis? And-
0: it became evident through the season. I didn't know anything about it when we started the F3 season. But there was this, we used to call it the fish tank, you know, this sort of little mezzanine level on the on the Project 4 shop, you know, and there was these sort of blacked out windows on the top. And there was these three strange characters up there, which was JB, Barnard, and Alan Jenkins, and uh, Steve, Steve Nichols. So those three were sitting up there, you know, we were like, what's going on up there, you know? And then it sort of became gradually evident, you know? And and it's funny because we, that F3 car we had, the March, was not a very good car that year, the 803. So John, we, we were cooking, I mean, we had all sorts of crazy development stuff, you know, then John used to come testing and try to figure out how to make work you know we had different side pods made i mean all sorts of stuff you know
1: that must have been quite something for a young guy because barnard had already you know worked in formula one he'd had success in indie cars as well i think he he won that year's indy 500 didn't he and were you aware just that what the opportunity you were having laid in front of you were you aware of just how big it was no not
0: at the time i wasn't really you know and uh, so, you know, uh, don't forget, Ron had Andrea de Cesaris and Chico Serra and the F2 team at the same time. So they were like one step in front of me in that kind of hierarchy anyway. And, of course, Andrea ended up getting the drive in the end, you know, for obvious reasons. So that that wasn't really something that I had in mind at the time. And like I said, it was only at the very end of the year that it that sort of started to become evident what the ultimate goal was. I remember, actually, it's funny, Funny. so my manager at the time, Stefan Svenby, who also was Ronnie's manager before, you know, it was kind of touch and go there to put the deal together with McLaren, I think, for uh, Ron. And he was offered, I can't remember the exact, but it was peanuts, you know, for 10% of the company just to close the deal. And he he turned it down. And I think for the next 15 years, Ron would never cease to remind him how much his 10% would have been worth <laughs> if you bought into it. You
1: know? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. Poor him. I mean, actually, but also he did manage Ronnie Peterson, as you say. And and, and what is it about, you know, the Swedes and Formula One? Because obviously Ronnie, great driver. There have been so many others as well with, what is it, Joe Bonnier and Gunnar Nilsson. And did you grow up idolizing those guys, Ronnie in particular?
0: Well, Ronnie in particular, yeah, because Ronnie was a bit of a hero. You know, even in the carting days, you know, he was one of those that was just able to do magic all the time, you know. So he was a legend, even when he was like 15 years old in Sweden. and, and everyone, oh my God, Ronnie, you know. He, and he sort of carried on that legacy, obviously, till, till the day he, he passed. So he was definitely a bit of a hero. But I got to know him because I actually ended up staying at his little cottage out in uh, Maidenhead, just outside of Maidenhead, renting the, the cottage out there. Uh, the, in fact, the year he got killed was when I started living out there, you know. So we, I, I didn't know him very well, t- I can't say, but and we got to know each other a little bit during that
1: period, you know. And he was wanting to look after the next generation. Yeah,
0: he was, I mean, and, and with Stefan, you know, the, his, who was his manager. You know, they were, started helping Elg first, and then I kind of came in at the tail end of that right as Ronnie passed, because, you know, they'd already done a deal with McLaren for the following year. And part of, you know, which was the Marlboro-sponsored cars, obviously. So I think part of that was to try to finagle
1: a little program for me as well, you know, in F3. And was Ronnie's death at Monza in 78, was it one of those moments for you where you can remember exactly where you were and what you were doing? Yeah, 100%. I know exactly where
0: I It's like I have the the picture, like a photograph in front of me. I was in a friend's house in a town just outside where i lived in sweden you know and uh we were there watching the race and uh, yeah it was, uh, it was a terrible terrible day for everybody in sweden really because it was you know some that never happened before you know so it was a big big deal
1: how did that knock your ambitions in racing did it make you think twice about what you wanting to do no not really no it's uh,
0: no it never did you know, that's all I wanted to do. And, you know, any setback, it was just,
1: you know, you just kind of regroup. Well, what about Andrea De Cesaris then? When you heard that he was getting the McLaren Formula One drive in 1981 and you weren't, and you'd had such a good year with Ron in 1980, you know, how how much of a setback was that?
0: Andrea, I know we were actually roommates. We shared an apartment at that time in, in uh, Woking, Andrea and I. I knew that I, I wasn't really in the running for that. You know, there was never, I don't think there was ever on the cards that I was going to get uh, get into that car. You know, I mean, Andrea, as we all know, had extremely strong connections, you know, with, with Marlborough and everything. So I think that that was a given, you know, that that was part of the deal almost.
1: Yeah, but he only did the one year, didn't he? And Ron famously said he was never going to have another Italian drive his cars again, and he was true to his word.
0: <laughs> That's true, actually. I never thought of it. Yeah. yeah,
1: you did race for Ron in Formula One in 1987, and just tell us a little bit about how that deal came about.
0: Well, so I did the two years with my cl- with the, sorry with Ferrari before that, of course. We always kept in touch, you know, we were, we were always, and we went, you know, sometimes between races, we went together and, you know, with our girlfriends, I think at the time, uh, you know, and so on. So we we always had a kind of a good connection. And uh, when Keke decided to retire and then, you know, my, the situation with Ferrari was a bit fluid, you know, then, I mean, it kind of just kind of happened organically, you know, it was, uh It just kind of built up to that, you know. And then then we did the deal uh sometime at the beginning of the year, I think, well,
1: maybe the end of the year before, actually, yeah. You must have been so hopeful coming into that year with McLaren. They dominated the previous championships. Yeah. What were your first impressions of the McLaren MP4-3 when you tested it for the first time?
0: Well, I had almost no testing before the first. I mean, I think I had like 30 laps around... uh the Rio track before the actual race, it was very, very little testing because I think the car was finished late and this and that, you know, Prost obviously was well embedded with the team. So I had very little time in the car, but the car was solid, but it was never an easy, that wasn't an easy car, you know, it was, I mean, even Prost, you know, had a tough time with that car. It was very nervous, very, you didn't really have a lot of comfort in the car, you know, it was quick. You, you could get a quick lap out of it, but it was not an easy car to just go out and, you know, it was hard to get any confidence in the car Had a very, very nervous rear end, you know, and, and, and not only nervous but kind of unpredictable, you know? So you, it's hard to know where the limit was, you know, and when you hit the limit, it was too late. So it was, uh, it was a tough one to go out and commit fully, you know, cause you just never quite sure what was going to happen next, you know?
1: So not only are you going to that first race with very little testing, but did you also feel that you were very much walking into Alain Prost's team? Did you feel the whole thing was set up around him?
0: I very quickly realized that I did. <laughs> <laughs> In a good way, I have to say, because Prost, you know, was really the, he was the standard for all the drivers. I mean, he, you know, I mean, the first come debriefs, you know, my brain was just fried. I mean, the amount of information that came out of him, you know, was just like overwhelming how detailed he was in all this, you know, because then we had no data really to rely on from computers or any sensors of the car or anything. So it was really, really, really important, the feedback from the driver. So initially, it was really hard. It was just so much information and you kind of, but then, you know, after a few sessions, you know, you sit in a room and you kind of realize that it was all very structured and it was broke. You sort of start breaking it down. And then you start to understand how his whole thinking worked, you know, and I, I have to say, I mean, in that one year with him, I probably learned more than I did in my entire career, you know, but it was something I could carry with me wherever I went after that. He was just phenomenal. I mean, he was, I mean, I think even Ayrton, when he came to the next year, he he elevated his game to a whole other level because he already, I mean, he had natural talent like no driver has ever had possibly. But then he also got to see that structured, organized, sort of very detailed part, you know, which then raised his game to a whole other level as well. And do you feel
1: that you raised your game during that season? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I did, yeah, no question about it, yeah. I mean, you got five podiums to Alan's seven. Do you feel that, you gave a good account of yourself that year? Do you feel could have done
0: more? I think in the circumstances, yes. I mean, obviously, you know, we were both unlucky, in fact, in some races, so they had a lot of reliability issues with the engine in particular. You know, I finished sixth and Prost was fourth in the championship and I, I think I was, I can't remember how many points, it was 15 points behind. So, I mean, you know, if you look at, compare almost anyone to Alain Prost, I think I did all right because he was, you know, truly on a different level than everybody else at that particular time, I think. And it was, you know, one race I think I could have won, which was Spa, when he lost all his, you know, the instrumentation on the car. So I kind of had to, they had to rely on my info. I, I mean, I could have lied and just, you know, told him something else and caught him, you know. But, you know, I figured out, you know, to my detriment, did the right thing, you know. I should have probably just been a bit naughty, but there you go.
1: And of your 12 podiums in Formula One, which was the best, not just at McLaren, but of all 12?
0: Well, I don't know, actually. I never really thought. I mean, The best was probably the ones that I didn't get a podium because, I, I mean, there was races which I could have won that didn't happen for whatever reason. You know, I mean, Canada, I would have won for sure if it hadn't been team orders. I finished second behind Mikhail. That was my like, third, second or third race with the team. Detroit, I would have won if a brake rotor hadn't exploded with a lap to go. So, you know, finished second behind Kekke there. So, but, you know, I mean, I don't really like to dwell on shoulda, coulda, woulda, you know, because everybody's got a shoulda, coulda, woulda story, you know. So, I mean, it is what it is.
1: On the other end of the spectrum, there was Austria 87, wasn't there, where you had that crash on friday when you hit the deer and then in the race you were involved in the start line crash and then you had the problem after the pit stop with the wheel i mean can you just reflect
0: it was that the 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 crash with the deer and everything
1: which is insane too
0: i mean i almost freaking got killed so i was with willie dungle i don't know if you remember him the guy was the the nicky lauda's physio and he worked with me and a few other people anyway so you know We're in Austria and, you know, I broke a couple of ribs when I had the accident with a deer, but I drove with broken ribs the whole weekend, which was painful beyond description, as you can imagine, because you know how painful a broken rib is. So Willie was going to take me to, he had some house at the back of the, like over by the back, behind the Bosch curve. So I'm on the back of his bloody moped or some scooter. We're driving up there. So he was going to, you know, had a bed of it, he was going to do some treatment for me. So we, we're chugging along on his little scooter. I'm on the back and some piss drunk Austrian, whatever, just goes ballistic. And he hit me like straight, he nearly knocked me out. I mean, I'm on my back, I'm completely out of it on the, on the ground. He knocked me right off the scooter, almost took my head off said, so now i don't only have the rip, but I also had a freaking headache. Like I could barely see straight, you know. It wasn't meant to be, was it? So, <laughs> no. And then we had this start line crash. And then in the race, because Ron was holding the paddle, you know, when we did the pit stop in the race, he lifted the paddle. before One of the guys in the back wheel still had the gun in. And of course, when, you, when the paddle, you just go. So I just went, you know, and this freaking air gun was still stuck in the wheel. And I mean, I think we passed like, Six, seven garages before the gun eventually. I mean, the hair the, the hose was like a quarter inch thick by the time it was stretched out, and then it came back through the pit lane about 200 miles an hour. <laughs> it's American, it didn't
1: kill anyone. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So, the weekend was even worse than I imagined. Yeah, it was It was a total disaster. Then I was three-wheeling it back to the pits, you know, after the wheel came off. I mean,
0: it was just a complete nightmare.
1: What did Ron say after the pit stop? Did he apologize or...?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, that was the good thing with McLaren, you know, because we were able to have a good laugh all the time, you know. And I, I mean, I can't remember the full exact, but I mean, everybody had a really good giggle after the race, you know, because it was just one of those... What else can you do? I mean, it was just—you got to see the funny side of it.
1: The end of a bad weekend, but and what about the, the the deer incident? I mean, the car was badly knocked around by that, wasn't it? Completely destroyed. How frightening was that? Of all the
0: shunts I've had, it's probably the one that gave me the shits more than any other shunt because, you're know, like at Indy, if you have a crash at Indy, you know, you something happens, boom, you hit the wall and that's it, it's over. But in Austria, you know, it's in the morning. So the grass is all a bit wet from the night before, you know, and this runoff is like 200, 300 meter runoff almost, you know? So you have a lot of time to think that, and you know, it's going to be a big one because the car isn't slowing down even half a kilometer, you know, when you're in the wet grass. So when the deer hit, it ripped the left front suspension right out of the pickup points. It was just four holes basically where the pickup points were. So it took the, you know, I had no brakes. I had no steering, took the rear left corner off as well. So I'm just a total passenger, you know. I mean, the only thing I remember is I had enough time to take the wheel out of the car, you know, the, the quick fit, and just pull my legs up as close to me as I could in case it hit front first. But lucky, it kind of slid around and it hit backwards first, so which took a lot of the impact. But it was enough to, to crack the, two of my ribs, you know. So um, it was a pretty painful week.
1: Were there no yellow flags from the marshals? Nothing. I mean, nothing. Not even a, a warning, nothing.
0: And a, apparently the deer had been running around there for a good five minutes, you know, and, you know, Ron was livid because we found out, you know, and I mean, he had a, you know, basically a destroyed car. So, I mean, the, the cost for the team obviously was not insignificant because it was a write-off, basically.
1: We won't dwell on too many bad memories, I promise. But I did also just want to ask you about 87. At what point was it clear to you that you were going to have to find another job in 88? At what point were you told that Senna was on his way?
0: You know what? It could have actually been that same weekend. <laughs> no! I no! No, anyway. I never thought of that, but I think it was the same weekend, in fact. And I, I love Australia. It's a great country, but clearly. Didn't uh, do me any favours that week. Um, yeah, actually, now you mentioned I think it was almost certain it was that weekend, yeah.
1: There was a bit of speculation, wasn't there? That the deal... Yeah. Did you know in advance that you it was probably going to happen? Senna to McLaren? To be honest, I can't... I mean, I
0: knew there was a chance even before the season started that that might be what happened, you know, if if uh, if everything kind of fell into place on their discussions. So, but, you know, it's still... The options I had, I still felt it was a better option than, you know, cause the, because, you know, I had the chance of going with a world championship winning team, basically. or At the time, it was, you know. And Ferrari at that time really wasn't, you know. we I knew that it wasn't going to be much better in 87 than it was in 86, which really wasn't the case for many years after that, in fact.
1: We'll come on to Ferrari. Just while we're talking about Senna, he's a guy actually you know better than most because you were teammates at Tolman at the end of 84 and stacked up pretty well. It has to be said, what was your take on Senna as a racing driver, his strengths, his weaknesses, and don't be modest. How do you think you compared?
0: Well, I mean, at the time, I mean, you know, like we did the first race in Portugal and we were, you know, we were pretty close. I mean, I was actually quicker than him the first day and I only found out about three years later on or four years later on, one of my mechanics finally, you know, it left the team and told me, well, you know, Senna had us take your engine (laughs) and put it in the car. No, really, really. Yeah, for real. Yeah. So, I mean, in in a way, that kind of summed it up, you know, which, I mean, you have to admire that, you know, that you have that drive and, you know, that's on no no compromise, you know, because in his mind, I guess it was on fathomable that I could be quicker than him so it had to be a reason so there you go you know and uh, I mean he's an incredibly intense guy you know and I think had he been a bank manager or a bank he would have been the best banker in the world you know it was just that mindset relentless at being the best at whatever he did and obviously he had a God given talent you know that was a natural talent that you could
1: see from his early days in karting again you know there was just the raw talent was just amazing. Did he help you in any way? You know, he'd been there all year apart from Monza. Did he try and tell you about the car, how to help you set it up? Or...
0: No, not really,
1: to be honest, no. Okay, but you didn't make it easy for yourself in 1984, let's face it, because not only did you go up against Ayrton Senna in the same car, you thought you'd put yourself up against, <laughs> against Stefan Belloff as well. Yeah. Who was incredibly highly rated. And it has to be said that you stacked up very favourably against Bellof.
0: Yeah, I mean, actually, I think he only outqualified me one race, but I beat him in all the races. And yeah, Bellof definitely, I, I think I had the best of him.
1: Let's say something positive about Austria, because... The Austrian Grand Prix in 84, you and Beloff are in the Tyrrell, and you out him by I think 1.6 seconds or something. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It was massive. I mean, I, I was really on a roll then too, you know, I was, I've been really on top of it. I did so much driving that year too. I was racing in Japan. I was doing Group C in Europe. I was doing F1. I was, dri- I mean, every weekend I was in a different car, you know, and it really does help. But Austria, I always loved, I mean, I love high speed corners, you know, that's kind of, was that was my thing, you know, to just balance the car on the, just on the edge the whole time, you know, for a long, long, long corner, just maintain the speed, you know. So I, I loved Austria, and I'm not sure Beloff was a huge fan, you know, so I think, and he was Kala, you know. We had no chance of even qualifying almost, you know, so I don't think he was particularly motivated, whereas I was extremely motivated, you know, because I really wanted to get
1: back into Formula 1 in, a, in full time, you know. Do you think your performance against Beloff was when the big teams first sort of stood up and took notice of you? Is that when Ferrari first went, hang on, who is this kid?
0: Uh, A little bit. Yeah. But I think really, I mean, Ferrari was mainly the big dice I had with uh, Nicky in Portugal, in the Tolma. I think that got his attention more than anything because immediately after that, they started making contact and, you know, inquiring about next year and, you know, maybe do a test or, you know,
1: can we put some flesh on that bone for people who can't remember? So you're at Portugal, you're in the Tolman. We now know that Senna's got a better engine than you. <laughs> but um Nicky Lauda, you're a complete thorn in his side. But what are your memories of that race?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it was, the, I mean, the car was great. I mean, that Tolman car, first of all, was a great car. I mean, Rory Byrne and Pat Simmons, you know, obviously they had a Pretty decent career after that car, you know, in their own way. So, I mean, Rory is a genius. I think still is to this day. The car was very nice to drive. A you know, really, really good car, and the heart engine was strong at that time. The car was definitely really competitive, and uh, I just felt comfortable. You know, I mean, I was. I mean, I felt I had pretty good control of things as well. You know, so, and um, you know, I had a pretty epic battle with Nikki and. The only thing I remember, I was always surprised at how lack of aggression he had, let's say, to try to get by. He didn't really make any big moves or any big attempts, you know, until quite late in the race, really. And then kind of the race just kind of fell in his lap, you know, with the other people so on. But uh, I felt I had pretty good control of the situation the whole time.
1: And do you think Nicky put in a word for you with the guys at Ferrari?
0: No, I I doubt it because he was really pissed off with me afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> we became really good friends kind of through that later on, you know, but I remember we met that winter in Kittsville for the ski week and he was all grumpy, you know, ooh, you know, and he had a it. then we sort of got drunk and then we became really good friends after that, you know. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> Can you remember your first visit to Marinello?
0: Yeah, my first visit was when I got hired, actually. That was the first time I I went down there. It was, uh, so, you know, the the next season, 85, I was without a drive, but I went to Rio, you know, like I'd done the year before, you know, as the sort of the, with a kit with me, you know, my helmet and the suit just in case. And then Ken decided to take Beloff out of the car because they had some dispute over something. So, Last minute, I got thrown in the deep end again, you know, and ended up doing the race with the Tiro. Then I got a phone call the following week from Piccinini, and I lived in London at the time, and asked me if I could come and meet him at the Savoy. You know, I'm sure. You know, whatever. So then he explained, you know, well, you know, we, um, we'd like to hire you for the rest of the year. I'm like, what? You know, that's right. So then he you know, explained that they're going to get rid of Arnoux. And of course, I had a contract with Tolman, but Tolman didn't have any tires. Yeah, I had that, whatever dispute it was with Pirelli, Michelin, I can't remember the details. But the bottom line was that we didn't do Rio because we didn't have the tires. And that's why I was there, you know, doing the thing with Ken, with Turo. So this was like on a Monday or Tuesday before the Portuguese Grand Prix. Literally, we agree on everything in his hotel room. it took an hour, you know, and then I had to call Alex Hawkridge and ask him, you know if he if he would release me, and of course he said, I'm not I can't stop you, you know, this is every driver's dream, you know, I can't stop you doing that. So he was very kind, you know, and uh, released me from my because I had a three year contract with Tolman then, you know, so it was quite a big deal to get released out of all that. And then the next day, Literally, on Wednesday, I fly down to Maranello, a very secret meeting in in Modena in the old factory uh, with the old man, Pier Paolo Gardella, which was Piccinini's sort of assistant, right-hand man, picked me up in Bologna, took me to the old factory in Modena, which was just nothing. It was just, I mean, there was no activity there whatsoever, just some old cars underneath, you know, awnings and stuff. And that's where I met the old man the first time and his, you know, son, Piero and, and Piccinini. And after that, we uh, went to the factory to do a quick, quick seat fitting, did about 10 laps around Fiorano the next day. And then we flew to Portugal on the Thursday. And that was, that was it,
1: thrown in the deep end, you know. That is one hell of a week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. I've got so much to ask you about this. First of all, can you remember what Enzo Ferrari said to you when you signed the contract for the first time and you the first time you met him?
0: Yeah, very, very well. So they were yapping away in Italian, and then they asked, you know, Piccinino, so the, but, and they were speaking mostly amongst themselves in Italian, you know, and then, so we're in this room, this old office of Enzo Ferrari, you know, and no lights are on. I mean, only Ferrari. It's like the whole, you know, it's like a Fellini movie, you know, that you see the sun coming through the windows to sort of, barely you know it's sort of a little bit of light there you know and he sees silhouette you know in the back and so the only question he asked me was are you hungry and i kind of understood he didn't mean if i was you know physically hungry i said i've, I've never been more hungry in my life and, and he said okay you're
1: hired amazing and what is so ridiculous in a way is that this was your first full season in Formula One, and you're a Ferrari driver. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Man. I mean, if you think
0: so, I mean, it was really too early, you know. I mean, I wish I'd had a couple of years full time with a with a midfield team to just learn the ropes, the politics, and all the shenanigans that goes on in F one. Because I was so wet behind the ears, you know, and so naive in many ways that kind of lacked that experience. You really need to be with it top team like ferrari you know just to just to deal with all the politics and everything
1: as well so it's off track that you felt you were
0: lacking not on track no no i mean i think on track i mean you know the first year i mean obviously michele was you know was already fighting for the championship so i kind of came in at the tail end of that and as such i gave up at least two races i could have won uh on team orders you know should I coulda, would again, you know, but uh, I mean, it could have been a totally different scenario. But the next year, I mean, my focus was on, you know, beating him in the championship, which is what I did. But unfortunately, the car that year was really difficult. I mean, it was not a very good car, you know. We ended up fifth, fifth and seventh. I, th- I finished fifth and I think Mikela was
1: seventh in the championship that year. Imola 85, it's your second race for Ferrari.
0: The car was really good. The whole I was quickest in the morning practice on Saturday. So I knew if we had a good shot for pole. But what happened was that the, I think the mechanics had somehow not tightened up the floor on the car. or like, Anyway, long story short is the floor came loose, the whole underfloor. So the car was all over the place, you know, and I mean, we didn't see it until the qualifying was over. You know, the whole thing was just like moving up and down, you know, a couple of inches. I mean, it was just air balance was all over the place. So that's why we only qualified 15th. But even in the warm-up, you know, we were right there on Sunday morning. And we had the game plan in place, you know, with the fuel economy and everything. I knew exactly the datum number every lap. And I stayed in that the whole time. And I was still picking up people one after the other, you know, so I knew I had complete control of the race. You know, I knew it was going to get to the end.
1: Ayrton Senna is on his victorious way into the Rebazza. The double left. Senna's in trouble. Could be, could be fuel. So Senna slowed right down out of the blue. And one would hand down. There is Stefan Johansson. Stefan Johansson goes into the lead. You're suddenly leading the race. And every single person there thinks you're about to win this Grand Prix. Your first Grand Prix. I mean, it was
0: incredible. Even I remember when I passed for the lead, I couldn't hear the engine of the car because of the sound of the crowd. It was, it was unbelievable.
1: I will tell you this that the Italian crowd is absolutely beside itself with euphoria and excitement, as well they might be. Because as James said, in that dramatic moment, uh, Ayrton Senna has had victory snatched from him by Stefan Johansson in the Ferrari. And Stefan Johansson is now on his 58th lap out of 60.
0: And, and that's your hands. Your is in trouble now. Your hands is in your trouble. And
1: frost has now gone into the lead. And the damn thing runs out of fuel. Just how frustrating was that? There was a tiny little crack in the inlet manifold, which was sucking
0: in air. So, of course, the engine then had compensated to get the same mixture. So, it was pushing more fuel to get the same mixture. And that's why it ran out. Otherwise, I, would, I mean, if I ever drove a perfect race, that would have been it because it was really on the button the whole time. And I I I learned a lot about that, you know, because I did all those years in sports car racing, and that's what you did all the time with the Porsches. You know, you had, that was, I mean, a Le Mans, that's, I mean, not only, I mean, all the races, in fact. So I had that technique down really well, you know, how to really manage the fuel. And, uh, you know, so (laughs) there you go.
1: ...behind him, and Stephanie Johansson, actually smiling. Well, there is a man with courage and good humor, He'll certainly be the hero of Italy, not only for having led, but for the way he deported himself, having had to retire through no fault of his own in this incredible
0: San Marino. I was still kind of a young kid on the block, even in the F1 paddock, you know, because I hadn't done a full season. But I remember when I was walking back from where the car stopped to the pits and all the team I mean, it was the standing ovation from all the teams in the pit lane,
1: the mechanics, everybody, which was incredible. It's making the hairs on the back of my neck stand up even now, (laughs) hearing you say that. Interesting points you make there about fuel economy and how you're driving to a lap time. You learn to do it in sports cars because in today's F1, the drivers are often complaining that the limiting factor is the tyres and you're not on the limit in the race. How frustrating was it for you with the fuel economy thing? Were you ever on the limit in a race?
0: Well, I mean, not in the sense that, you know, you'd... No, I mean, you weren't, but you still have to be on the limit within those restrictions, you know, which is actually in many ways more difficult than just being able to drive the car on the limit with everything available to you because it's a really special technique to get the speed out of it. To be honest, I think that's why Schumacher had a little bit of an edge because he did all those years in sports car racing. Every driver that I work with, or I always encourage them to do more sports car racing because there's no better training for racecraft than sports car racing. The race a prototype, you know, and you do these long distance races, you know, you have to improvise all the time. You can, you know, there's traffic, there's weather conditions, there's dirt on the track, it's this and that. So you constantly have to improvise and kind of drive with feel all the time. You know, so it's not, I mean, in F1 now, you just, all you do is just go out and you drive it as, as quick as you can, basically, you know, which is limited by the tire mostly now.
1: So uh, you, basically, you have to just apply a different technique, you know, that's all. Fascinating, actually. Driving within the limit, on the limit, but within the limits of the fuel economy is a really good point. Yeah.
0: Yeah, which is actually really tricky to get the most out of it, you know, when you have to do that. There's certain techniques, like with braking and stuff, you know, that you can really, like at Le Mans, you learn it a lot, you know, and you can, at Le Mans, we used to be able to get at least one more lap on a stint by applying a particular braking technique you know to use less fuel so it definitely works and you can you can easily i mean that scott for example is the absolute master of fuel management because he's kind of figured out that same
1: style you know Mm, that's scott dixon of course
0: yeah yeah
1: how many indycar titles has he won now five five pretty darn good isn't he actually that's a good point i mean scott dixon you're his manager Why hasn't he had a good crack at Formula One? It was just timing,
0: you know, we had. So when he won the championship the first time, we had the test with Williams, uh, which went very well. And we were due to have a test with Ferrari as well. We had some meetings with John Todd, you know, and they wanted to do a test as well. But at the same time, you know, he'd done the the year with Ganassi. Then we, you know, with Williams, the BMW was obviously the main partner and they didn't want a rookie in the car, basically. So at the time, we managed to leverage that and getting a really, really, really good deal from Chip for IndyCar. So we kind of ended up in IndyCar, you know, and that's just where the career ended up going, you know.
1: Do you think Scott Dixon is good enough, was good enough to shine with the best in Formula 1? I mean, I think
0: he would have been world champion. Had he got, I mean, the, if he'd been in the right, I mean, you know, in F1, you have to be in the right car at the right time. And, you know, the timing is so crucial in F1. And there's maybe two, at the, maybe three at the most who actually have the luxury of deciding which team you want to go with at whatever certain time. But if, all, you know, all the stars would line up, he would have, no question, he wouldn't be world champion. I mean, I think he's,
1: He's absolutely one of the best in history of any category, in my opinion. Interesting. Really interesting. But back to Ferrari, mid-80s, very different game back then. But Michele Alboreto is your teammate. And how helpful was that to have an Italian as your teammate at Ferrari? Because did he take a lot of the heat from the media because he was Italian? No,
0: not really. I mean, I think, I mean, I'm not sure it was helpful. I think it was... uh, you know, I didn't speak much Italian at the time, but I always knew when they were talking about me because it was always it'll be on though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now okay, what's going on?
1: <laughs>
0: so, you know, so I mean, we were good friends, Mikhail and I, already before, because we raced against each other in F three and stuff. But at the same time, we were fierce competitors, of course. I mean, in F one, in particular, you the first goal is always to beat your teammate. You know, because that's only the really real reference point you have. You know. But, I mean, we had a pretty good relationship, I'd say. I mean, we, we, were, we were, you know, good friends always. and uh, But it was it was fierce at the same time. It has to be when you're in a team like Ferrari, you know, that's you've got to get the job done.
1: So something you alluded to a little bit earlier on, but why did it all come to an end at Ferrari in 86? I remember James Hunt saying they're getting rid of the wrong guy.
0: Yeah, it was politics, you know. I mean, like, I was too wet behind the ears to n- know, you know, who to stroke, and I think just the Italian component and everything else, you know. I think it was – I did what I set out to do that year, which was to beat Mikhail in the championships that, you know, we knew the car wasn't going to be good enough to win races. So my focus was basically on scoring as many points as I could with the, under the circumstances, you know. So – and that's what I did, you know. But uh, politics obviously played a big part of it. And I kind of, at the same time, had my eye on wanting to get better results, and the McLaren opportunity looked like a better bet at the time, you know. So, and and the fact that Ron was kind of a friend, you know. Uh, I mean, we had a good relationship always, and uh, it just felt like a better option at the time, you know.
1: On paper, it did. I mean, <laughs> Alan Prost was the world champion in 1986.
0: Yeah, that's what I mean. It was obviously, you know, to go to the team, and there was no reason to think then that
1: they weren't going to have a championship winning car again you know there's a couple of other chapters i wanted to ask you about the first one of which is the whole honda experience you were instrumental in um, helping them develop their turbo engine spirit honda can you just sort of talk us through how crazy that was and perhaps let's start at the beginning how the deal to work with honda in formula one came about
0: well, so, you know, I knew John and Gordon quite well, you know, through the F2 programs and everything. And John ran, you know, when I, when I did, after the F3 championship, then I did F2 with docking, Alan docking with the Tolman F2 car. Then Wickham, John Wickham ran the March factory team at the time. And then him and Gordon Copper got the opportunity to do this Spirit deal, you know, with the, in the F2 car. So I ended up driving for Spirit in F2 in 82, uh, with uh, with Terry Bootson as my teammate and about halfway through the season I think we found out that there was ambitions to do F1 from Honda. We knew that you know it was either going to be me or Terry basically being the driver and uh, we didn't know who either of us really you know until then I guess Honda made a decision that they wanted me to be the driver for them. So th- I think we found out uh, some sort of end of that f2 season basically
1: was it a speed thing that they were after or was there was it sort of politics off track that got you that drive
0: i think it was more the speed thing you know the japanese i think i mean for, i don't know why it is this maybe it's my name johan son that the japanese really like because i was always like super popular in Japan, you know, I mean, during that period when I spent a lot of time out there, I mean, I was more recognized in Japan and I was in Sweden even, you know, it it was ridiculous, you know, so I, I can only imagine, it must be something to do with a name or something, you know, Johansson, son, you know, so anyway, that's kind of what happened, you know, And but I always had a really, really great relationship with the Honda guys and in fact with Japan in general, you know, I always had a lovely time there and very, you know still to this day i have a lot of great friends there you know and a lot of people are still in contact with and work with
1: so the chassis tell me if i'm wrong was a converted formula 2 chassis is that right absolutely yeah what you took that car out to were you just pounding around suzuka or, or where was all the testing taking place
0: we did all the testing in california believe it or not at willow springs why california Willow Springs and Riverside because of the weather. So they, you know, this was in the winter. This like in January. So we flew because and, and Honda US is based in Torrance. We used to work on the cars in Torrance, and then we'll take it out to Riverside or to uh, Willow Springs, which both tracks were marginal at best, you know, and <laughs> safety or anything. Uh, but we did a lot of running, you know, and uh, we were there for like. Think like a six weeks straight or something you know just kept testing and then a couple of days off fixing changing stuff on the car and, and you know whatever
1: and how did the engine evolve during that time well it was
0: uh, i mean the whole year was it got slightly better but i mean it had good power it, it wasn't really lacking that much in power but it was just the reliability was very marginal you know i mean i used to joke at the time you know i said i didn't need to do anything fitness training during the week because I always got to, you know, I put in about 10 miles of running every weekend because remember we had spare cars back then. So the car would blow up, you know, in the first practice session, I'd run back to the pits, get there in time to jump in the spare car, you know, and do the last 15 minutes of practice and then rinse and repeat. Same thing the next day, you know, <laughs> Just like almost every weekend it was like that.
1: And how much of a disappointment was it when they said we're going to Williams for 84? It was, I, Devastating
0: for me, really, because I thought I'd finally cracked it to Formula One, and you know, now I was in you know what I've been dreaming of my whole life since I was a little kid. You know, so it was really tough. And I remember Joost rang me up to do the twelve hours of Sebring, which was the same weekend as the first Grand Prix in Brazil. And I remember we won Sebring, and I was just totally miserable and grumpy because I wasn't in Brazil. You know, that's all I wanted was to be in the F1 paddock, you know, and and do the Formula One races. So I ended up that year being like the, the super sub, you know, wherever there was an empty car, I would, I would be there, you know, uh, first with Brundle when Brundle had his bad accident in Dallas and then, then with the Tolman later in the year, plus all the group C stuff and Japan and everything else. Yeah.
1: God, it's such a fascinating period of growth for Formula One, wasn't it? Those early 80s, both technically and as a sport and the TV spectacle growing as well. It must have been such an exciting time to be part of it, really. Yeah, everything just took off in that period. Yeah, it was amazing. Absolutely, Of course, yeah. Probably not much to say about 1988. You know, there's the Ligier. Poor you, really. Didn't they have some novel... Was the fuel tank not behind you and it was behind the engine, or hadn't they done something?
0: Yeah, it was, they split the fuel tank in two. So they had half the fuel tank behind, you know, in the normal place behind the driver, and then another fuel tank between the engine and the gearbox yeah. for the weight distribution. You know, poor old Tattoo, Michel Tattoo, you who know, was the chief designer. I guess he told me some, you know, somebody just sort of threw it out as one of those thinking loud when, they, when he had lunch with Guy Ligier one day. And Guy was like, Wee! Oui! Oh, fantastic! You know, like every every 10 minutes it's in the drive. Are you making the car? Are you doing the, you know? (laughs) no choice at that point, you know. Was it the worst Grand Prix car you drove? Yeah. Oh, Hans. Arno and I, we used to joke, you know, Isaac Newton was the chief aerodynamicist because the only thing that kept it on the ground
1: was gravity, you know. Actually, that was an interesting um, teammate for you, given that, You'd replaced Arnoux at Ferrari in 85, and then suddenly your teammates at Ligier in 88. Everything good between you? Did you ever sort of discuss that 85 period with Ferrari? No. And, you know, to this day, no one
0: has been able to give me the reason why they fired Arnoux. And he certainly wouldn't dwell on it. And no one of Ferraris ever told me what actually happened. I have no idea, no idea what happened. But Arnoux and I, we got on great. He's a great guy. I love him to death, you know. And we, we had a really good time together, just as friends as, as well as teammates, you know. And he's, he's a, he was a very good driver, obviously, very, very quick, you know.
1: When you're struggling with a car, as much as you were that Ligier in 88, does it sort of take the rivalry out of the relationship, with your teammate. Does it diffuse the situation because it's so bad we may as well have a good time?
0: It does to a degree, definitely, yeah. When you know, I mean, obviously when you kind of know that you have no chance of winning, then the killer instinct is not there, you know, in the same way as if you know you have a chance of actually winning a race, you know, because there's something happens inside you and you know when you when you can smell the wind, you know, something there's a whole different dynamic, you know, definitely.
1: An extra layer of, is it motivation yeah. or, uh, yeah. Well, just, you become ruthless,
0: you know, you just, there's just nothing that can stop you at that point. If you can sniff that you got it in within a grasp, you know, then you just, there's just some a whole different dynamic, you know.
1: So look, finally, continuing our theme of of the great personalities that you work with in Formula One, Jean-Pierre Van Rossum and Onyx, yeah. uh, a colourful character. Yes. How did that opportunity come about?
0: So the the well the Onyx thing came about because it was really a group of really good mates who put this thing together. You know, Mike Earl and uh, and Alan Jenkins. Who Alan and I were really good. We became really good friends through the Project Forward program with Ron. So we used to you know spend a lot of time together. Even then, you know, having dinners and stuff. You know, we both we lived in Woking. And so, so we were all constantly in contact, even, you know, between all those years, he was, you know, he ended up going to America and do the Penske thing. And, but we were always in contact. So when, when I found out that Mike had hired Alan to do the new, the the Onyx car, and I had a tremendous amount of respect for Alan, because I mean, I still think to this day, he's one of the smartest guys that's ever been in Formula One, you know, I was very excited about it. And uh, obviously I had enormous amount of frustration with the Leisure program that year. So we started talking about it halfway through the year, probably. And then it sort of came together. We sort of shook hands on it, actually, at the Australian Grand Prix, the last race of the 88 season. But Ron Rosson only came into the picture... Kind of, I think after one, maybe two races or so. I don't think he was involved in the very, very beginning. Bertrand Gachot brought him into the program, but it wasn't, he wasn't—he wasn't there from the very, very start. I don't
1: think his role was was simply cash, was it?
0: Well, so in, initially his role was just a sponsor. So he came in as a sponsor, but then the team hit you know financial difficulties. You know, the the original investor who was supposed to put up the money didn't. So, you know, and then, you know, one thing led to another. Van Rossen got more excited, more involved in the thing. And then he ended up, uh, you know, putting up more more money. And as a result of that, an on- ownership role as well. So he then he was, you know, very heavily involved,
1: of course, you know, from that moment on. So we must talk about Hill, podium number 12. And extraordinarily, you, you'd failed to pre-qualify at the race before and the race after, yet there was this beacon of light in Estoril. Just talk us through the weekend and how competitive the car was.
0: Well, the car was always good. But remember back then, all the cars that was pre-qualifying that year were all good cars. And whoever made it through, those four that made it through, generally qualified in the top 15 every race, you know, and often in the top 10 even. Really good cars, really good drivers in all the teams that had to pre-qualify that year pretty much. So it was unbelievably tough to make it through pre-qualifying. And if you had the slightest glitch with the tires or any anything, mecha- you know, anything, because you had that one hour, it was literally, you were done. You know, you, everything had to run perfect. So it was, you know, just, I can't remember the circumstances from the race before. But anyway, so we got through pre-qualifying pretty comfortably. You know, it was quickest in the pre-qualifying. So we knew we got through that. And then the focus from that moment on was really just, race setup the whole time and Alan and I had a good discussion you know and I throughout all the years you know because my focus was generally more on the race than qualifying because in in F1 back then it was relatively easy to pass in the races as long as you had a good race setup you know and you managed to race well so qualifying position if you lost two or three places wasn't the end of the world you know because you could easily make it up if you had a better race car so the focus was more on the, on the race. So And what I'd learned from the Goodyear guys from previous years, even with Ferrari, for example, was that, you know, you always – and I always kind of – I spent a lot of time talking with the tire guys. And we, we so we made a game plan, basically, to take one set on Friday already in free practice and just do, like, two, three laps very gently just put a gentle heat cycle on them and then put them to the side. And that would be the race set. So we did that on Friday. And then we did the same thing first thing on Saturday morning. So we put two very gentle heat cycles with almost scrubbing no, no scrub on the rubber. But it was enough to cure them just enough to have that, you know, a little bit more durability. That was the race set. And the, the game plan was to do the whole race without a pit stop. And no one else did that. So everybody else had to stop. So we, you know, we, I, I think I qualified 12th or something. So I got up to seventh pretty comfortably just on speed. And then we were just waiting for the rest to do their pit stops. And when that cycled through, we ended up third. And, uh, and that's, we kept that till the end of the race. Although the, the left front and that long right-hander before the start finished was, I mean, I could see it every lap. The steel literally canvas started showing. And I mean, in the last five laps, it was like hardly any
1: rubber left on the tire. It was, just, it was just a steel canvas all the way. It's a remarkable skill being able to drive like that. How do you know how hard to push in the early laps when you know you've got to do the entire race on that set?
0: It's a feel thing. You just have to feel it. You can't, you just got to stay right below weight scrubbing. You know as long as you have grip but it's not loosen the grip you're fine you know so you always stay on that right below where you feel it's starting to scrub you know and that's what you got to do the whole time you have to be really disciplined to just
1: stay in that window the whole time you know and that was one of your many great skills as a driver and something you learned from group c as well well i
0: mean i think I would, yeah probably my best skill was to you know manage a race well and i no question about it learn most of that in sports car racing you know
1: so when I asked you earlier best podiums was that one in 89 with Onyx I mean given that you'd had to pre-qualify and everything was that one particularly special yeah I think
0: that was probably the best of podiums you know because it was so so much work went into it and was so much such a personal thing for all of us you know because mm-hmm. we we all kind of had our setbacks whatever and here we are you know a bunch of guys that we were all good friends and we've been through all this it was an unbelievably tough year you know the team was on the brink of no finances you know and all the problems were pre-qualifying I mean emotions were like high all the time you know so it was definitely a satisfying
1: and a nice reminder of your ability did it wake up any of the top teams again and did anyone show any interest for the following year no
0: not not much to be honest no it really didn't you know and the thing is I already had a contract for the following year with with Onyx as well you know that obviously then the whole thing just fell to pieces during the winter you know and it sort of died almost you know but uh it, I mean some in- funny stories with Van Rossen too you know I mean he was. I mean, talk about a character, I mean this guy was he was unbelievable, you know, but we we struck up a really good friendship again, you know I mean we you know through the year with all the hardships and everything you know I mean you got to know the guy, and he was he was a great guy, actually, you know I mean he his appearance and everything you know I mean he was obviously troubled in some ways, you know maybe, but uh he was a gentle, very kind person in the end. what I really admired was that he did everything he promised he would do and more you know it was never it took some time and we had to juggle a million different things you know but i mean you talk about chaos you know i mean i remember i mean for example you know I picked, he lent me a Rossa for the belgian grand prix just his private car you know it's oh it's, uh, just pick it up there the garage there and there you know so I'd go there from the airport pick up this car and I drive, you know, drive down to the track, and this, you know, when I get there, there's like this, like a shoebox, so on the floor next to the passenger seat, full of cash.
1: <laughs> <laughs> a shoe—I don't know how much was in it, but it was like several hundred thousand for sure. <laughs> oh my goodness! What, and he'd forgotten it was there? Yeah, it was just sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! So, as you said, the Onyx thing fell apart in 1990 and then there was, what, a bit of footwork and a bit of AGS in 91. But then it all came to an end and, and, and you, you moved to America a couple of years later and haven't looked back. If I was to say to you, best F1 car you ever drove, what would you say?
0: The best F1 car I ever drove was a car I never got to race, unfortunately, which was the Tolman 85 car. Unbelievable car. I mean, I tested it in Rio before the season. We had some engine issues, but you could feel the car was just fantastic. It was just an evolution of the 84 car, but way better, much more aero. But Rory had this, I don't know, I mean, the geometry of his cars is incredible because the car is so harmonious, you know, you, it's just quiet, it's calm. You just, you can feel everything. You know, some cars are quick, but before you, like, from the moment you turn in until you get to the apex, it's like, Thirty five things have happened. You know, there's like all this stuff. His car is just like you all you have to do is just concentrate on getting your turn in, get to the apex, get on the power. You know, it's like calm. It's just a whole different harmony in the car. And the car was just fantastic to drive. So lucky Fabian and Berger, whoever ended up driving it, because it was a phenomenal car.
1: Wow. Amazing yeah and best race you drove oh i don't know i mean imola
0: i guess was probably one of them you know which i should have won and it probably just changed everything you know had i won that race imola
1: 85 yeah
0: everything would have been i could have actually then i would have been a contender for the championship that year because the car was still you know at that point the championship winning car you know it went downhill after that but
1: yeah Wow. Stefan, it's been such a joy just to sort of reminisce with you and talk it all through and, you know, some great stories and your loving life in California. And just, just give us a few lines on what you're up to, particularly this collection of Stefan Johansson Joe. What is it? It's it's luxury watches.
0: Well, it's watches, but now I'm actually, I'm, I'm talking to you from my studio here where, you know, I'm doing, actually most of what I do now is is I do the watches, but really where I'm My main focus is on my art now. I do a lot of painting.
1: How long have you been
0: painting? So I started painting in 86, actually. I mean, I was always interested in art and design and so on. But I started painting in 86 when, and it's a weird story. And to be honest, I don't really know to this day what prompted me. But when Elio De Angelis got killed, I mean, we were like really tight. You know, we were like brothers almost. We hung out together all the time, had a lot of fun together and You know, I used to go to dinner almost every night at that period, you know, it really hit me hard. You know, I didn't, I just, I was kind of lost for a while, you know, and something prompted me to go and buy a canvas and some paint and do something in his memory, whatever. And that got me started, you know, and I got, from that moment on, I've been hooked on it, you know, so I've been doing it more like a hobby my whole life throughout my career But in the last sort of five or six years now, I got the studio here where I'm working now, and now I'm really taking it serious. So this kind of is my life part two, if you like, the art, you know. So I'm trying to, I mean, I'm developing it now. I'm selling quite a lot of stuff just through here, but also trying to commercialize it with different products based on
1: my art, you know. It looks fantastic. Have you ever had lessons or are you self-taught?
0: I'm taught myself, yeah like most things in my life, you know, you just got to figure shit out as you <laughs> go along.
1: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but I mean, what are there members of your family who are artists or? My grandfather was an artist,
0: uh, so maybe I've got some of it from there, yeah. But I've, I've got a few artist friends, you know, that I spend a lot of time with and they sort of taught me a little bit, you know, I used to hang out with an artist called James Rosenquist he passed away a few years ago but i used to hang out with him down in his studio in florida and he taught me primarily how to mix colors you know to get the right colors which is really the tricky bit you know the idea is the hardest part you know you got to get the idea you got to have the eye to figure out what it's going to look like when you're finished you know and then uh, mixing the colors is the other tricky bit for me
1: anyway how amazing and Anyone who wants to have a look, it's all on your website, is it?
0: Yeah, everything's on my website. Yeah, I'm just com or or .art, either one.
1: Are you you still friends with Mark Knopfler? Yep. Yeah, I I saw Mark right before the whole pandemic started and I was in London. Yeah, yeah, we're we're still in good contact. Speedway at Nazareth. Yeah, yeah. He wrote that song about you, is that right? Yeah, Yeah,
0: it was weird because back then, you know, we didn't even have mobile phones, I don't think. So we used to talk, you know, he's on tour and I'm... On a race somewhere, and we just both bored on a Saturday night, you know, and sort of end up chatting on the phone for a couple of hours, you know and somehow, I guess he chronicled the whole season's conversations and turned it into a to a song you know which is is kind of cool
1: that is totally cool, isn't it, yeah, uh, yeah yeah ah Stefan look what what an amazing life you've had part one as the racing driver and now part two as the artist
0: yeah exactly well I hope so
1: yeah look thank you very much for your time it's been wonderful to chat Uh, are we going to see you at a Grand Prix anytime soon
0: I hope so yeah well whenever things get back to whatever the new normal will be I'll I'll, uh, definitely I'll be at some races yeah
1: look forward to seeing you and thank you very much for your time thank you so much take care bye-bye If you have a look at Stefan's website, stefanjohansson.art. you'll see that he's really nailed his new craft. And to think it was Elio's death in 1986 that prompted him to pick up a paintbrush in the first place is just so poignant. And there's so much else to relish in that conversation. Senna, Beloff, Ron Dennis, Prost. How many drivers in history have worked alongside so many of the sports greats? The only thing his career CV lacks is a win. And listening to him describe Imola 85, his second race for Ferrari, when he ran out of fuel while leading almost in sight of the finish line, is emotional and nothing short of cruel. Stefan, thanks for your time. It was great to catch up and I hope to see you at a Grand Prix soon. That's almost it for this week, but before we go there's just enough time to sift through the virtual mailbag to see what you've been saying about the show, and we've had a lot of feedback about Alex Zanardi, almost all of it saying what a legend the man is. Paul Curran says this, what an incredible person Alex is, with an incredible story and such a great sense of humour. Has anyone pissed off Flavio Briatore as much? And I'm shocked to hear about his accident and I hope he makes a full recovery. Well, Paul, that was a great story about Monza 1991, wasn't it? All those late night phone calls from Flavio were hilarious in hindsight. And we're all wishing Alex a full recovery. Of course we are. And here's one from Toby Davis. TC, that was the best F1 Beyond the Grid podcast to date, in my opinion. And it's so sad and ironic that Alex is now fighting another battle. My prayers are with Alex Zanardi and Daniela. Everyone listening will echo those sentiments, Toby. Stay strong, Alex. The world needs people like you now more than ever. We've also had a great message from Nyril C. About the show from two weeks ago with Ricardo Petresi. When I was six years old, Nyril says, our primary school teacher asked what we wanted to call our new class gerbil. My nomination had the highest number of votes and the gerbil was named Ricardo after Mr. Patrese himself. What a guy. Great podcast. Keep them coming. Ricardo, if you're listening, that is one big accolade. What a great story. Thanks, Nyral. Well, that's it for this episode. But of course, we'll be back next week with another big Formula One name. In the meantime, if you want to drop me a message about the show and potentially get a shout out on here, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid. Thanks for listening. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, Forza Alex.